Well, welcome to Friend Day. I know we have some guests and visitors with us, and we're glad. If you haven't yet, make sure you stop by the Visitor Center and pick up your gift bag, some things there for you to take home with you today. We're really glad that you're here on this day, and today the message is a part of a series we're in on Jesus stories. It's been a series of different times that Jesus told a story, not a story about his life, but actual stories that he told, like the story of the prodigal son. Or last week, the story of the bewildered bridesmaids. Well, today I want to talk about the story of the roadside rescue. Now, before we even go into this, this is the sermon on a text that you know well, the Good Samaritan. You know this. In fact, there was a survey done of of Bible stories people felt they could tell from memory. And 67% of people feel like they could tell the story of the Good Samaritan from memory. I suspect you could as well. So whenever you tell a familiar story, you hopefully can bring something new to that story. So as we kind of move ourselves toward this Jesus story, a story Jesus told, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever felt stuck? Have you ever felt stuck? I had that experience happen to me once 30 years ago. I was uh, a young, young, younger man, and I was a youth pastor in in, uh, Reddington Christian Church, and we took our college students spelunking. Now, we went with another group from Bloomington of people who were college students over at IU uh, from a campus ministry, and we had a guide, a seasoned spelunker as our guide, and there were probably 20 or so of us that were there all together. And um, I remember it was a cold, brisk morning about this time of year, and uh, that morning when, when I had gotten up, I thought, I'm going to wear a sweatshirt today because it's kind of cold, it's going to be cold in the cave, and so I had a had a, a, a thick cotton sweatshirt on. And that should have been fine, except when we got to the cave, the first thing we had to crawl through to get into this cave was a kind of a, of a crevasse that was a, about the width, probably, of our stage here. But, but I can tell you this, it, it, was, it was not very tall. And uh, I'm sure I would not fit through there at all today, but then I thought I could do it. And so I was near the front of the group, and, and I had some of these college kids from our church there, and I was anxious to dive in. So the, the first person went in ahead of us. It was our guide kind of showing the ropes to go, and, and I was eager to follow. So I just jumped right in there, right? I'm going to set an example. So I start going in there, and my nice, clean sweatshirt is on this tacky clay kind of soil that's underneath me and above me. And the farther that I go in, the more difficult it is to press forward. And pretty soon, my belly is tight to the floor, and my back is tight to the ceiling, and I can't even take a full breath. And I begin to panic. I try to kick forward with my toes, and my toes are just slipping in the the tacky clay soil. I can't get any traction. I can't move forward. I'm stuck. I was the second guy in line. All these people are behind me, and they're like, come on. I told you it's really wide, and so... All of a sudden, I look as these intrepid, skinny college kids start going around me. And pretty soon, 18 or so, 17 of those people have gone past me. And I am sitting there thinking, oh my goodness, this is embarrassing. I'm stuck. I can't do this. And I had to tell you that in my mind, I already had my plan. This was a four-hour trip that day. And I knew that I was going to spend my day, I was going to back up out of there somehow I was going to go sit in that van, and four hours later, I'd be there to wave at them when they came out of the cave. That was my plan. But the 20th guy was a 
uh, a man who had come out of, out of the military, his name was Dave, and he was a, um, uh, using his GI Bill to go to college. And so he was kind of helping out, he was at the end of the group, and his job was to help anyone that was last in line, that was me, the youth pastor. And so he said, hey, I've been through this cave a couple of times, I'm a pretty big guy too. And he said, I know you can't really see it, but he said, in front of you, he said, probably another 18 inches or two feet, the cave kind of opens up just enough that you can get through. And he said, uh, I think you can make it. He said, if you'll exhale all your air out and push really hard, I think you can get through there. Now, I didn't really want to go in there at that point, but he's right behind me, and he's telling me this, and, and, um, and he was a big guy, and, and he had been there, and so I kind of did it, right? And he was behind me, so he pushed on my feet, I exhaled. And it felt like I was being born again, literally, like the first time. Yeah, I don't know what that felt like. But anyway, I got squeezed through that space into the cave. And it was pretty awesome. It really was pretty awesome. Now, we crawled through other areas. And by the time that it was time to leave the cave that day, that uh, sweatshirt was muddy and slick. And I never had any problem at all sliding back out of there. Maybe I'd lost that much weight during the four hours. I don't know. But whatever it was, getting out was a lot easier than it was getting in. Now, I tell you that because that was one of those times I had to experience that real awkward feeling of everyone just walking past or going past, getting around me, not being the leader, but being the person on the side. Have you been sidelined? It's not a fun place to be sometimes, right? Maybe it was injury. Maybe it was something else that kind of put you to the side. It's a rough spot to be in when you feel like everyone's passing you. Well, that comes into play in this story that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 10. And if you can imagine what that feels like, then you will be able to put yourselves very much in the, per, the place of the unnamed character in our story who falls into a difficult space. Now, before we tell the story of the Good Samaritan, let's dive into this text and let's understand the occasion on which Jesus told the story. In Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25, we read these words. It says, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. So before we kind of go any farther, let's understand what this expert in the law was. In their day, and especially in Israel, an expert in the law certainly knew the Old Testament. He was wise. He would have, had, uh, had, would have memorized large sections of it. He would have memorized all of Leviticus. Uh, he would have recognized and had, had memorized parts of, 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 uh, of Deuteronomy. He would have memorized those things and had them taken to heart, large sections of Scripture. He would be an expert in that he knew every one of the law codes that God had given Moses. But because they were a theocracy, they weren't a democracy, but a theocracy, they did not have a separation between church and state. And so their faith dictated how they had to live their lives civilly with each other. So he was a lawyer in the sense that he knew God's law, but that's also how they, how they interacted in society. Now, to do that, he has had to have been uh, trained under other legal experts in the law. He, it kind of like we would have a degree, a master's degree or something. It would be similar in his day. There would be, have been a lot of time spent in teaching and training, 
And he would be highly respected. Now, today, lawyers don't always garner the respect they would have then. But remember, these were people who knew God's word, and so they were respected for their knowledge of God's word. But he comes to Jesus, and it says in the text, he stood up to test Jesus. He really stood up to trap Jesus. That's really what he's come there to do. Kind of the idea here is there's a little bit of resentment of Jesus by a lot of characters at that time. They resent him because, for one thing, everyone calls Jesus rabbi, teacher. Now, in that culture at that time, if you were a rabbi or a teacher, you would have also, like that lawyer, you would have been trained under other rabbis. Saul, who later becomes the Apostle Paul, was trained under the great rabbi Gamaliel. He was his teacher. But Jesus has no one. There's no indication ever in Scripture that Jesus sat under anyone except for God. So there are many people at that time who see Jesus as an imposter. He wasn't trained by any great teacher. He wasn't known and yet he would go out and teach, and the people all respected him. And in fact, more people follow Jesus, this untrained, at least in their eyes, rabbi, than follow other rabbis who paid their dues and were very much reputable in the, in, in the eyes of the, the established religious authority. So his purpose this day is he's actually coming there to try to unmask Jesus, to show everyone that he's a fraud, that he's not who he says he is. I mean, that's his task. His task is to try to take Jesus apart in a debate of sorts, a very thinly veiled debate. And he wants to show the people, right, that Jesus doesn't know the law. He doesn't know God's word. And he's going to demonstrate that in a battle of wits, in a battle of words. So he comes to test or to trap Jesus. So he comes to him and he says, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's the question. We start with what, what really matters if I want to be with God forever? What really matters? Now Jesus, the greatest of rabbis, right? The greatest teacher does what a lot of great teachers did. Socrates was famous for this. It's teaching by asking questions. So Jesus flips the lawyer's question back on him. Basically, he says, you're the expert in the law. Uh, what do you see? He says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Now, the person who's come to set the trap now finds himself as the one who's going to give an answer. But he's very sure of himself. He doesn't doubt that he knows the answer to this question. And so he is happy to answer the first question. After all, it's a debate. It'll go back and forth. And, and he recognizes this is a chance to set up his opponent. And also in the eyes of the audience, and there are many people watching this, in the eyes of the audience, a chance for him to show that he really is the learned expert that he claims to be. So Jesus says, What's, what do you read it? How do you read it? He says, well, this is it. He quotes from the Shema, from, from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. He says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, 
with all of your strength and with all of your mind. And then even adds to that from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, the words, and love your neighbor as yourself. So he comes at it with this, and this is something that we should pause just to think about. What he says is true. If you want to inherit eternal life, you should love God with everything that you have. So his answer, the, the, the lawyer's answer, is true. We should be able to ask ourselves, so consider this, right? Because one day God may ask you this question. Did you love me with all of your heart? To Peter, Jesus once asked the question, Peter, do you love me more than these? It's a great question to ask ourselves. Do I love God more than everything else? Also, he asked us, do I love him with all of my mind? Do I study? Is my mind engaged? Am I studying his word? Do I love him with all of my soul? Am I, am I acknowledging God as God? Can people see God in me? And did I love God with all my strength? Did I spend my energy serving the Lord or myself? The way that he answers is a good answer, and it's, a, and it's an answer we should consider. Now, when Jesus hears his response, Jesus says, well, you've answered correctly. That's funny, because in saying that, you realize that Jesus just set himself up as the one who determines what's right and what's wrong. The lawyer came thinking he knew what was right and wrong, but Jesus now claims authority to say, you're right. You're right. Now, we know that Jesus knows the heart and the mind of a person he speaks to. He's able to understand things and know where we've been, what we've said, and what we've done. When he calls the apostles, uh, the disciples, one of the things he does to Nathaniel is to say, I saw you by this tree. I know where you were. He, he knows things about us that, that only he could know. So he knows that that very day, this lawyer, why the lawyer might say, love God with all these things, he knows this guy hasn't done that. He knows I haven't done that, and you haven't done that. Not in everything. So Jesus says to him this, now if you'll do those things, you'll live. If you do those things, you'll be all right. Now this is an interesting thing because when he says that, the lawyer is offended because Jesus has just implied he's not doing these things. He's implied, so the lawyer who came to test Jesus now is on the defensive. He's losing the debate. About this moment, I figure he's really wishing he hadn't come to test Jesus. He's really wishing he hadn't tried to set this trap. But now he's in it, and where is this happening? In front of everyone. That's what he wanted. He wanted to embarrass Jesus in front of everyone, but all of a sudden now, his own character is being impugned. Jesus is implying that he's not following the Shema. He's not living up to the standard God wants him to live up to. He says, you need, to, you need to do that if you want to live. So he now is grasping at straws. And he thinks, I have to say something. I've got to throw this back on my opponent. And so the lawyer then takes the best swing he's got left. And the swing that he takes is he says, okay, okay, I hear what you're saying. Well, who is my neighbor? 
says he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus in reply, who is my neighbor? Tell me. Now, you need to understand something about the culture of Jesus' day. In the tradition of Jesus' day, a neighbor to this lawyer or to a Levite or to a Pharisee or a Sadducee or a scribe, a neighbor, as they understood it then, was anyone else who was a descendant of Abraham. A true descendant of Abraham, I have to treat like a neighbor. But they did not believe that they had to treat Gentiles like a neighbor. They did not believe they had to treat a Samaritan, a half-breed so-called, as a neighbor. So he's expecting Jesus to answer that way. But in reply, Jesus tells the story you know well. A story in which Jesus will imply everyone on planet Earth is your neighbor. (laughs) Everyone on the planet is your neighbor. R.C. Sprawl says, not everyone on Earth is my brother or sister, but everyone on Earth is my neighbor. Not everyone on Earth is a brother or sister in Christ, but everyone is my neighbor. So he begins to tell the story of the Good Samaritan. But you should know that that title, the word good never shows up in the text. The title of the Good Samaritan is something that we've put in to tell the story. But you should know the lawyer doesn't think there's any such thing as a Good Samaritan. To him, that's a a false statement. There is no Good Samaritan to the lawyer. That's important to what Jesus is telling us here. Here's the story. Let's read it again. You've heard it ever since you were a child, but but maybe there's some things we've not thought about. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, you should know that Samaria is in the middle of Judea and Jericho or Galilee. It's in the middle of those two places. When you go from Jerusalem to Jericho, you go down, literally down, 3,700 feet. You descend. You descend along a very mountainous path that has lots of places where, there, where both animals and people can hide and attack people who are passing by. I mean, you've heard stories about mountain lions in California that attack hikers and bikers and, and, and they jump out from the side and they, they knock them down. Well, similar things would have happened on this path. In fact, it has come to have a reputation at the time of Jesus. This was actually called the Bloody Pass. It was called that because there were so many attacks and so much violence occurred on this road. You didn't usually travel it alone. You usually would travel it in a group so you had some protection. Or you would travel it on a fast horse so you could get through it quickly, but you wouldn't travel it by yourself, not very often. There was a second thing about this this path, which would have been very well known to this lawyer. Jesus is telling a story about this path that takes you right through the heart of Samaria. And again, I said, right, they don't think there's anything as a good Samaritan. It was a land. So the Jews usually went on the long path, a safer path, and a path that didn't go through Samaria around it. But it took longer to do so. That's the path. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Right away, the audience was like, well, that's not very smart. This guy goes down that path. He's got to know what's coming. 
Like, where'd this yokel come from? Doesn't he understand what's happening? That's the character in Jesus' story. He was attacked by robbers. The audience is like, for sure. They stripped him of his clothes. They beat him, and they went away, leaving him half dead. And everyone would have said, that sounds about right. <laughs> That's what happens if you go down that road. Yeah, heard about that many times. Nothing there is unfamiliar to them. They might feel some sympathy for this poor soul, but so far in the story, the audience is kind of like, yeah, that's kind of what you get if you go down that path. What comes next is a surprise. A priest happens to be going that way, and that's not common. The priest usually would have gone around, but in Jesus' story, he has this very intrepid priest who's taking the dangerous road also by himself. So Jesus has now lumped him in with the guy who wasn't very smart to take the path by himself. And he has a priest doing that. There's a subtle insult in there to the priests. One, they wouldn't take this path very often. And two, Jesus has them by themselves. The priest goes down. He happened to be going down the same road. He must have been in a hurry. That's what the audience would have thought. Because only being in a hurry would make you take such a risk. He sees the man on the side of the road, and he passed, says, he says he passed by on the other side. Now, here's an interesting thing, right? One, a priest actually had a legal responsibility to check and see if someone was dead, and if they were dead, to try to deal properly with their body so no one else would have to become unclean. He had a responsibility to do that. But he shirks his responsibility, maybe because of where he is. He doesn't, we, the Bible doesn't tell us if this man was a Jew or a Gentile or a Samaritan. It doesn't tell us who he was, the guy who got beat up. We don't know who he was. He's just a person. The priest doesn't even take time to figure that out. Maybe he thinks it's a trap. Maybe he thinks this guy is just faking him out, hoping he'll walk over there and then he'll get ambushed. Whatever the reason, the priest passes by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he also passed by on the other side. Now, a Levite was kind of a priest in training. Not every Levite was a priest, but every priest was a Levite. And so uh, this is someone who should know what's coming, kind of the up-and-coming apprentice, we might say. He's learning the ropes. Maybe he's been following the other priest as his teacher, and he's followed his example very closely. <laughs> Maybe Jesus has taken a little jab at this idea that who was your teacher and are, who are you following? He did that elsewhere. Anyway, the Levite does the same thing as the priest. But then a Samaritan, pause. You need to know again, when Jesus says the word Samaritan, people in that audience scowl. They think of them as dirt and dogs. They hate them. I hope that there is no one in your life that you hate like they tended to hate the Samaritans. But it was a hate that they had. It was bitter. It goes back for centuries before the time of Christ. And they hated them for so many reasons. But they hated them. Some because that had been the center Samaria had been one of the capitals of the northern kingdom, and there was a place of false worship there. And they had come, Israelites had come to worship 
Baal and Asherah, they had sacrificed their children, they engaged in, in rampant sexual immorality. A lot of things had happened that caused the people in Judah to despise them, even though, truth be told, sometimes the people in Judah got caught up in the exact same things. There were other reasons why. The northern kingdom had been taken into captivity, but some had been left behind. They had intermarried with other people. When the Jew, people of Judah had been captured and brought back, Ezra made them send away their foreign wives. So they considered themselves pure, pure bloods, purebred, and not apart, not tainted by foreign blood. You don't have to like that that's how it was, but that's how it was. And that was the way they saw the world. So when they say Samaritan, you've got to think about who is the person that disgusts me the most. And if we're going to rethink this story, that's probably who we'd have to put in there. Would it be a politician for the other political party that you don't like? Would it be a famous criminal? Would it be a person that, that has harmed you in some way? Who would you think of as the person you hate most of all? Because that's who Jesus makes the hero of the story. The most hated person that they know is the hero of their story. I told you last week, Jesus has a way of kind of hooking us, flipping the script, pulling kind of a, of a, a Spielberg or a Hitchcock or, or an M. Night Shyamalan movement moment where the directors, those are famous directors who flip the script and they have some, some shocking reversal in the story. Well, that's what's happened here. The bad guy's the hero. <laughs> no one sees that coming. Maybe he wasn't such a bad guy. A Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. I want you to get something about the story that we're going to see. So far, we've talked a lot about the who's in the story. But Jesus wants that lawyer and his audience to know that it's not just a story about who, but what and how. This is a story about how do we show compassion. That's at the heart of the story. It's less about who is my neighbor and more about how do I show compassion and what are the limits of my compassion. Is my compassion limited by who it is that I'm helping? That's at the heart of this story. If you have compassion, you don't just feel it, you show it. You see, compassion is sympathy plus action. Think of it this way. God didn't just have sympathy for us in our sins. He didn't just feel bad for us in our sins. He had compassion for us. He got involved. He took action. He did something about it. He felt our pain, but he felt our pain on the cross among us. Amen. So, it's not just that you're sympathetic, but it's compassion, sympathy plus action. Jesus tells us, right, it's difficult to be compassionate when you don't see a need, when you don't see what's happening. And the Levite and the priest, they didn't see what was needed. But somehow the Samaritan does. He comes to the man, and when he sees him, he takes pity on him. He goes over to him. He bandages his wounds. He pours oil and wine on him, which was the medicine of their day. 
Then he put the man on his own donkey, and he brought him to an inn. So he gave him safe passage down that mountain. He got to the inn, he took care of him. And the next day he took out two coins and he gave them to the innkeeper. He said, look after him. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Now, Jesus turns to the lawyer. And he asks him, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? This expert knows he lost the debate. But now it's gotten personal. And he says to Jesus, it is the one who had mercy on him. Now earlier Jesus had told him, do this and you'll live. Now he tells him, go and do likewise. And we know that Jesus won the argument And we even have an implication that maybe the lawyer was looking inside, being introspective, because he doesn't say anything else. That's the end. The one who gets the last word often, they say, wins the debate or argument. And that's what happens here. And we can only hope that this lawyer does exactly what Jesus asked him to do. Go and do likewise. You know, compassion has a way of coming back to us. We don't act with compassion so we'll receive something back. That's not, we we act with compassion because it's the right thing to do. But oftentimes when you show compassion, it truly does have a way of coming back. I read a story that I just find fascinating. It's a true story. It's the story of a nurse who in 1999, her name was Penny Brown, and she was watching her son play Little League Baseball. Uh, During the game, a bat was thrown, and it hit the catcher, a boy named Kevin Stevens, square in the chest, and it caused his heart to stop beating. Kevin collapsed on the dirt right behind home plate. Now, because she was a nurse, Penny Brown ran onto the field. She recognized his heart wasn't beating, and she immediately began to do CPR and mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. And she brought him back to life. And the little boy was saved because of the actions of Penny Brown. Kevin Stevens recovered completely and lived a normal life. Now fast forward 10 years. Penny Brown is now sitting at the Hillview Restaurant in Depew, New York. And as she is eating her evening meal... She, be, she gets choked on a piece of food, and she can't breathe. She motions with a universal sign for, I'm choking, I'm choking. And there's no one around who seems to be able to help her. Everyone's kind of in shock, and she's desperately trying to show she can't breathe. It just so happened that the bus boy was a junior firefighter. He'd been trained in certain techniques as a junior firefighter, and he runs to the aid of Penny Brown. He administers the Heimlich and he saves her life. As I say, compassion has a way of coming back on us. In this story, even doubly so, because the boy who saved her life incredibly was Kevin Stevens, 
the same boy whose life she had saved 10 years earlier. In the newspapers, he said, it's almost like it was meant to be or something (laughs) because it was such a unique situation. We don't act with compassion because we expect to get something in return. But when we act in compassion, we almost always do get something in return. The Bible talks about God's compassion. Jesus' story has another application that isn't realized yet when he tells it to the lawyer, but it's realized by us today. Because humanity, all of us because of sin, we were the beat up and discarded and wounded person on the side of the road. And we were going to die if we didn't get help. But Jesus had compassion on us. The Bible says it this way, God demonstrated his love for us in this while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. He carried us. He lifted us. He bore our sins and our stripes. Amen. He even died for us and he rose for us. Praise God. He's our good Samaritan. Just like the person in Jesus' story, not because they deserved it, but because God has mercy and compassion. Now, if you don't know Jesus, in a sense, you're still stuck on the side. You might be pushing with your toes like I was in that cave. You're trying awful hard to get unstuck, but you know what? You need somebody to come along and help you. I didn't realize. I only was with Dave one day of my life. But I'd call him a friend because he helped me at a moment I really needed his help. He helped me when I needed help. Well, I don't know how much you know about Jesus, but listen, this could be the first day, day one. He can give you a lot of help. He can help you to get unstuck. He can help you to get to the place you want to go, both in this life and in the life to come. Because when he enters our life, wow, he changes it. Not always in ways that are easy, but he changes it in ways that matter. I guess if you're here and you don't know Jesus, I invite you to do that. Our service is always in with an invitation for anyone that wants to, to come and make Jesus Christ their Lord and Savior, to be faithful in Christian baptism. If you're not a Christian, I invite you to do that, or at least ask questions about it and talk to us about it. For the rest of us, well, this is the most and best known of Jesus' stories almost. We know the story. But I wonder, how do we do? It's hard to have compassion for the people that we don't see. How are we doing with the lonely? Are we seeing them? Or do we find it easier to ignore that kind of stuff? How are we doing with the hurting around us? The sick, the imprisoned, the needy, the foreigner, the sinner, It's an awesome thing, and churches do great jobs of showing compassion to the people who are like us. But it's not easy to show compassion to people who aren't like us. I'm not trying to beat you up any more than Jesus was trying to beat up that lawyer. (laughs) But I want us to think about it. This is a message that has applications for all of us. We have a friend in Jesus 
And I hope that those who are around us will see they have a friend in Jesus through me and through you as his hands and feet. Whatever decision you have to make, will you make it now as we stand and we sing our hymn of invitation? <laughs>